listening to All Things Video, a podcast dedicated to uncovering the past and charting the future of the online video ecosystem. This episode is brought to you by TubeBuddy, the complete toolkit for YouTube channel management. This power-packed browser extension helps with everything from both metadata edits and trending keyword suggestions to thumbnail optimization, fan engagement tools, and so much more. Visit TubeBuddy.com to meet your new best friend on YouTube. You're listening to All Things Video. I'm your host, James Creech, and today's guest is Chris Smith, co-founder of Shade Crew and founder and director of Big Esports. Chris, welcome to the show. Hey, mate. Thanks for having me. Yeah, excited we get to do this, and you're all the way uh, coming to us from the dead of winter in Melbourne, Australia. Yeah, nice and cold. Hopefully I can get some of your warmth through the microphone. I, I heard it's uh, pretty warm over where you are right now. That's right. There we go. Well, good. I wanted to uh, start off by chatting about how you got your start in the gaming and esports space. Yeah, for sure. Look, it's it's been over a decade now, so I won't bore you with the whole story from start to finish. But I, elevator pitch is I've I've been around in in esports for just over a decade now, and I started as many people do as a player, and then I thought, you know, maybe there's a little bit more to this. Maybe there's a job I can get out of it, and I thought about my transition into the business space. And for me, that started off as a commentator. So I used to commentate for Battlefield Two, a game back in the day, a little bit of Call of Duty Four, and a bit of Counter Strike, and started enterprising a little bit more within that role. Um, and trying to grow the organization I was working for, which was an internet radio organization, obviously before Twitch TV or even Justin TV because no one's internet was good enough to stream. Uh, through my contacts there, I ended up running Australia's largest prize pool tournament for Counter-Strike at that time in 2010, and that really launched me into the industry. The uh, brand I helped launch, they really liked what I did, offered me a job, moved into state, worked for them for four years in, in PR and marketing, and then since then I've done a little bit of everything. I was a journalist for a year and a half. I managed one of Australia's first professional full-time StarCraft II players, um, a guy called Pig, who's a famous streamer and commentator now. I've helped found an industry body, EGAA, and then that kind of led me to do a bunch of mentoring and where I am today with my startup, Big Esports, and even you know, more recently with Shade Crew. It's so great to hear the stories because I find so many people who are really you know, OGs from the esports space started when you did a bit of everything, right? Like similar to your story, when I talked to Benedict Krauss, who, you know, was at ESL and part of that, tried to stand journalism and was a, you know, tried to be a professional player himself. Uh, just so many like parallels in these stories of, you know, you'll do anything to be in and around esports and be a part of growing the community. So it's great to hear. And it's interesting to hear too about the evolution of the titles over time. Like you were talking about Counter-Strike and Call of Duty and a lot of the FPS games that, that gave birth in many ways to esports. To today now, you know, we've got the Battle Royale phenomenon. You've got different type of meter strategy games like League and Dota. How do you think that the esports space has evolved over that decade? And do you see the focus of, of the popular title shifting? Yeah, look, I think it's in a healthy space right now. Me coming from FPS, you know, I was a bit disappointed um, probably around the 10s, you know, 2010 to, to 2015 almost. There was basically nothing in first-person shooters. I'd be frank in saying Counter-Strike Global Offensive wasn't a good game when it came out. And I was a semi-professional player during that time. And, you know, it was a bit disappointing in, in many different ways. The Call of Duty franchise, had moved away from PC to console and there was so much talk in that market around that time that look devs don't care about PC it's too expensive takes computers that are far too expensive they don't get as much microtransactions or money out of them and it was all console console so thankfully it's come back around you know while there is console esports the vast majority of it 
is PC unless you're in Asia with a bit of mobile. So that's good to see. And yeah, it's good, um, I guess, that you identified about Battle Royale games as well because that's that's completely shaking up the market. You know, I've released some, some tweets recently from people I've been talking to, um, especially based around Shade Crew, in saying that Battle Royale isn't traditional esports in any way whatsoever. It's not one team versus another team in a competitive format. There is also a fair bit of randomness in a Battle Royale, which is something you want to limit in an esports game. Let's say, for example, you were playing baseball and every 12 minutes one player just had to leave the match for no particular reason. You know, that's way too much randomness, whereas you might play a game like Gridiron where the ball isn't perfectly round. So there's a, there's a limited and controlled amount of randomness. You don't know exactly where it's going to bounce, but you have a, have a fair and general idea. So that doesn't come across to battle royales because you could land somewhere and there could be not a gun for you to pick up you could land somewhere and someone could have landed before you and kill you instantly so there's that kind of issues or you could get shot in the back by something you can't control so you know there's there's that kind of stuff happening along with the fact that it's not 5v5 or 4v4 or 6v6 it's you know 2v2v2v2v2 2v2, 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 etc or 4v4v4v4v4 etc so they're shaking up the scene a lot in that aspect about what the core game is they're also shaking up the scene a lot in the aspect of content creation there are so many uh, esports professionals that we're talking to at the moment, specifically around Shade Crew, you know, which functions primarily as a influencer agency of top level players coming to us and saying, "Look, guys, we don't want a salary from you from Shade." They're saying we don't want boot camps or flights of accommodation to become the best player. We want support from Shade around our content creation, and they see a massive future in that. Whereas if you look at any other game like Dota 2, League of Legends, Counter-Strike, there's not really any prominent streamers or full-time you know, grinding out streamers or content creators like there is in Battle Royale games. You haven't got Tafui, who's competing in the top level of Battle Royale games or Shroud and such, but also creating content at the same time. You usually get one or another entirely, so that's a massive shake-up, and I agree with a lot of it. I think there's not a massive lifetime of being a player. You know, you're not playing for decades and decades like you can in traditional sports. So what's life after for them? It can be a bit short. So often, you know, they'll take the jump into content creation or with Battle Royale, they'll do both at the same time. Yeah, it certainly seems to be the case with Battle Royale, which often are much more casual titles. And you have this approach to streamers or influencers rather than professional athletes. So it's funny because now when, when you say esports, I think a lot of people conflate it with PUBG, Fortnite, right? When in reality, those aren't true esports titles, you know, to, to your point. Getting back on the topic of the, the first person shooters, I'm curious, do you think that there are any new titles that are bringing FPS back into kind of the esports mainstream? Of course, you have these titles with a lot of longevity, but, you know, we're hearing a bit of buzz now about Rainbow Six. Do you think that there are other titles that have potential to, to become very popular esports games? Yeah, Rainbow Six kind of came out of nowhere. It was, it was released for a while. Um, and, you know, didn't really have that much fame within the wider industry, within esports or general gaming, and then it seemed to just explode. And a lot of that's due to the great work that Ubisoft's been doing about developing their esports ecosystem, you know, similar to how Blizzard and Riot are, are all in on their esports ecosystem. It's such an important thing now for a publisher or a developer to be pushing that so hard. But it's an interesting question that you asked. You know, obviously Fortnite's fairly new in the grand scheme of things, as is Apex Legends, which has seen a massive drop-off since it released. And there really hasn't been too much, because it's it's so hard. It, it's no longer the fact that you can just create a good game 
and it'll be super popular. If you see Apex Legends, it's an anomaly. You know, it became very popular because it was a good title. It functioned well. However, the drop-off has been immense because the support hasn't been there in the long term. So sometimes you can create a sort of competitor if your product is amazing enough. Let's say, you know, you're a Tesla, for example. But the longevity of your scene and keeping things going is hard, and it's very expensive. If you look at the amount of money that Riot spends in their esports ecosystem, it's absolutely crazy. It's so much, so many dollars compared to you know what people may think. If you're looking at Dota 2, you know, although a lot of that's crowdfunded, there's still a 25.7 plus million dollar prize purse for the largest tournament of the year. If you're looking at CS:GO, there's you know 300,000 to 1 million dollar tournaments that are happening as in minors and majors, you know, every couple of months and such. So if you're a new player into the scene and you want to compete against these, you know, these big dogs, it's, it costs a lot of money to play. And a lot of that activity is happening in the US. So we see some of it happening in, in Europe. What is the scene like in Australia? Look, the, the scene in Australia is developing. The standard answer is that we're three to five years behind the US. In the past, that was eight to 10. So, you know, we're, we're getting a little bit closer. Um, the issue in Australia at the moment, and this will happen forever, and I'm sure this happens in the UK as well, is why would a local player necessarily care about the tournaments that are happening in Australia? Our teams and players don't have as many marketing dollars, the companies aren't as big, and the players are arguably not as good as they are in the US. However, we're an English-speaking nation, as is the US, as are many other countries. And we have you know, a sort of similar time zone. It's not, it's not the opposite like it can be in Europe. So... That being said, why would a player watch a LPL local um, pro league finals here in, in Australia and New Zealand versus watching ESL 1 or Intel Extreme Masters or a Dota 2 major or minor overseas, whether it's in China or, or America or Europe? And that's always been a bit of an issue. And one way that you know we've been able to combat a lot of that is once again going back to the content creation. There was a PwC Outlook um, article posted today where Grace Watkins, the director of Click Management and one of the founders, um, she talked about, I think we have three of the top 10 Fortnite content creators on YouTube live in Australia. If you look at people like the Click Crew and the Misfits and, you know, their crazy size, people like Laserbeam with 5 million plus subscribers, Mr. Muselk on similar, Lachlan Plays, um, you know, Fitz, who's a Counter-Strike YouTuber on 3.5 million, you know, they're punching well above their weight if you're looking at the size of the Australian market compared to overseas and, you know, they're really leading the charge as far as that goes. So you touched on a little bit of your background, you know, serving as the marketing and esports community manager for Thermal Take and then working as a journalist for Tweaktown. What were those early experiences like? Uh, rough or, and or tough, <laughs> I think would be one of the easiest answers. And, and that is definitely much more around the Thermal Take side of things compared to um, Tweaktown. Like you were saying in the past, you had to do a bit of everything. So, you know, quick story, I used to run a Counter-Strike grassroots tournament at an internet cafe once every quarter, once every six months or so called TT Hub. The first ever tournament was three teams. I played in that tournament as well as ran it at the same time. In the future, you know, when I kind of quote-unquote retired from being a um, competitive player, I used to run a 16-team internet cafe tournament where I would book the venue. I'd physically create the servers to run the games on. I would do all the marketing. I'd handle all the signups, process all the payments, check everyone in. And then I would commentate and run the tournament at the same time and then pack it up the next morning at 2 a.m. and drive home. So you're literally doing everything from start to finish. You're doing production, marketing, finance, signups, admin work, uh, sorting out the tournament format, IT support, and, and then support for the players as well while being the on-camera on talent. So it's a ridiculous amount of different work. And, and all that time, you kind of 
forced to by the low marketing budgets you have access to. You know, marketing budgets in Australia for a lot of these endemic brands are, you know, barely hitting six figures even as of a few years ago. So, you know, the market is infinite in there, but since then it's exploded. Um, and then the dollars from HQs have come in, which has seen an exponential increase, which is fantastic. Once again, due to the, uh, you know, global nature of content and, and performance of um, various teams, players and individuals and such too. So it becomes much easier over that time. And yeah, look, that it can be a hard slog. And People getting into esports think they're going to make money straight away, especially in the market where it is right now. You know, my answer would be you're not, unless you're going to develop something that you're going to sell fast to a Google or to an EA or someone like that. So you need to be prepared and, and understanding that these things are going to happen. But, you know, since then, we've seen so much annual growth, and that's been backed up by PwC with the compound annual growth rate, which is now set at 18.3% for Australia, which is much larger than so many different markets around. So it's only getting better from here. Very good. In 2017, you launched Big Esports, a consultancy that focuses on helping non-endemic brands understand and approach the esports space. What inspired you to start the company? It's, as with a lot of things, I guess, uh, with, with startups and people starting companies is finding an issue that plagues you and wanting to fix it and then developing something from there. So it was part of that. And it was part of me just doing the things without realizing them and falling into it. So Big Esports started a lot as a mentoring agency. I used to mentor quite a few individuals one-on-one. -on -one. And to be honest, I was thinking, I keep telling these people the same things every single time. What if it just got these people into a group? I could make more money, they could save money, and I could reach more people with similar messaging. Um, and, you know, that's something that's quite common, you know, referencing Jordan Peterson, for example, stopping doing lectures and broadcasting them online because you can just teach so many more people in one go. thought that was a good idea. That started gaining traction. And then because of my experience in the space, I started getting approached about consultancy. So I helped uh, Fox Sports build out a little bit of a esports plan and portfolio for a while. And I thought, hey, you know, the money's better than some of the stuff I was doing in the past. Um, and it's something that purely, you know, interests me and is an absolute pure passion for me. So, yeah, I decided to get a little bit more into that market. So we expanded a lot more to, you know, a lot more in our consultancy side of things. So right now we're working with a whole bunch of different brands and, and VCs and agencies, helping them enter into the esports space, whether that's just basically through education, helping them understand what esports is and ways to get involved whether that's building out their strategy for involvement or actually facilitating their involvement within. But, you know, there's so many fantastic ways for everyone to get into esports. Most people listening to this podcast will already know about the demographics and the, the size of the market and opportunities afforded. But, you know, all these reasons are things that esports industry people such as myself harp on about all the time. But what I am discovering even more of is the fact that, once again, the power of influences is, is fantastic bringing traditional sports and influencer celebrities across to gaming is also a great thing that we've been doing with Shade to help develop that industry and also to help ease the education pathway of a brand. You know, let's say that you're a massive brand such as PepsiCo. It's a big ask for them to cut budget from another industry and jump into esports. It's a big ask for them to spend the time to educate their staff and, and take away from their busy schedules or to spend extra capital to hire a staff member only to look after this one little niche of esports. And people are starting to realize that. You know, we run a podcast as well, and I always ask the question of, are the non-endemic sponsors slower to mature than you've expected? And the answer is generally yes. And it's not due to lack of interest at all. It's just a lot of the time due to a lack of knowledge. So we're trying to help alleviate those pains 
So you started the business uh, two years ago. Had you always considered yourself an entrepreneur? I don't think so. There was a period of time where I stopped working in the industry and started studying social work. And I think that's when I identified with myself that I was probably an entrepreneur. My mom's a social worker and, you know, she's kind of been pushing me towards that, that path for a long time when I was younger and considering being a psychologist myself. But instead of like what happens most of the time here in Australia in social work is you're working funded by a government grant. Um, you're doing a hard job working a lot of extra hours with a lot of mental load on yourself funded by government money at minimum wage which can be cut at any time when funding changes so it's not a very stable environment for those people who are looking after disenfranchised or at-risk people so for me my thought was how can i take social work something which helps other people and how can i help people make money out of it and become much more stable so i was looking at private practices which is something that i believe has been you know frowned upon a little bit in the past in that industry looking at out of court mediation and settlements for you know people going through divorces and such and obviously you know none of this is is great podcast topics but you know the meaning behind it really is how can i help people make money and how can i help an industry grow and then after a while i was i was headhunted back into corsair to work as their pr and and marketing uh for a couple of years and and you know that kind of let those thoughts linger in my head over a period of time which which festered you know at the end of 2016 2017 or so where I said you know I think about time that I that I pulled the trigger and yeah went to doing esports full-time and what was the hardest part about being a first-time founder the hardest part is is the money I think that anyone who doesn't live at home such as myself will, will say you know a lot of the time it's the money and b you know it can be the workload but it definitely comes and goes I'm a believer in the fact of sprints that you know, if you're working 12 to 14 hour days, which realistically does happen, it's not forever. And if it is, your your business model needs to change, your staffing needs to change, your revenue needs to up, something needs to, to go differently because it's not, you know, it's not good for you or your body or, or your friends and family for you to be working 14, 16 hours a day for, for extended, you know, months, weeks at a time kind of thing. So, you know, the workload can be stressful, but also I guess it, it comes with being a boss as well and having staff you know depending on i started off as a non-founded startup for a while i had a bit of money saved um you know i was able to work from home which able enabled me to save money at my previous job so i was i was fairly safe around that aspect but i think it's the added pressure of having staff working under you as well you've got people that have quit their jobs and changed their lives to come over with your vision you know often a lot of the time they're an early employee so they might have KPIs to earn a percentage of your company in the future, but a lot of the times they don't have a percentage. So, you know, their buy-in really is in your future and trusting you as a founder. So I think for me, that was one of the most stressful parts at the start. It's something that, you know, I've learned to deal with over this period of time and not necessarily crushed, but being able to put a little bit on the back burner and, and just something that's part of being a boss and part of life. But yeah, I think those two things or, or three things are definitely some of the hardest when you're first starting out. Well, I'm glad you're, uh, you learned how to cope with the workload and the stress because it sounds like you, you added some more on earlier this year when you co-founded <laughs> Shade Crew. <laughs> yes. So that's an influencer collective for content creators in Melbourne. How did that project come about? So that project came about, I, I guess you can see um, a lot of my thinking about what I'm saying with content and such. So a lot of the issues about getting brands into esports, like I identified, was the fact that it's, there's so much education and it's still a bit of a risk for them to become involved. So I was thinking, you know, what's what's some of the best ways to get these brands involved is working with people that they're used to working with, is working with 
brands and, and creators and, and doing campaigns similar to what they already currently do. So if we're in the esports market, often that means that we're pitching teams as an influencer or such. If you're looking at the influencer market with Shade Crew, you know, we're using a lot of traditional talent. We're using sports celebrities, mainstream people who have made their fame through pranks or comedy, through being affiliated with sporting stars such as uh, Shane Warne's son who we have on board and others, doing campaigns with brands they've already worked with in the past and saying, hey, these are the same people, except instead of just looking cool on Instagram or just coming to your event, they're going to be talking a little bit about games at the same time. From a business standpoint, an influencer agency, in my opinion, is can be faster to scale. I don't want to say is, I say can be. Can be faster to scale. It can also have the ability to make more money quickly and is also can be developed into a saleable asset faster than something else. Because if you're an influencer and you're creating a company or you're creating companies with influencers, they are essentially their own marketing tool and marketing for you. So if you're trying to start a new esports team and you're trying to release content to attract fans, you've got an uphill battle of having to spend on Google ads and Facebook ads and et cetera, et cetera, to get people invested in your brand. However, if you're creating an influencer agency, you've likely already got influencers signed up. They have a following. So ultimately, they become your marketing campaign and there's not much extra spend you need to tack on top of that unless you're looking to scale faster. So those are some of those things. I've got some friends who are influencers and have been for quite some time now. And you know we're not at the stage in Australia where all influencers have managers and we haven't been in the past. And it also goes back to that same thing identified before with, with social work and with big esports is how can I help other people develop? How can I help an industry develop? And how can I make more money for other people? So all of those kind of things came together and yeah, Shade Crew was born out of it. What's coming next? If you had to make three predictions for the future of the gaming and esports space, what would they be? I'd say there's probably going to be the further development of Battle Royale games and more competitors. I'd also say that the mature rate of investment and non-endemic sponsorships, as in sponsors outside of esports, is going to accelerate in a large way, and we're already seeing the start of that. And C, I'm also going to predict that there's a correction coming soon for esports teams um, in regards to valuations and investment. I've heard a lot of people predict that recently, and yet we're seeing more money being invested into some of the teams and the parent organizations. What do you think will cause the correction? Why is that? Is it just uh, the business model is still not quite proven, the expense load is really high, uh, some of these teams are building rosters for titles that they're not sure if they're going to get off the ground or not? What, What are the things that you're seeing? Yeah, well, identifying the last point you said about building a team for or building a roster for a game that hasn't quite got off the ground, that's a common tactic for a tier two or tier three team, especially as someone to try to get ahead of the others that might have more money or fame than them. And I I think that trend will continue. I think a lot of the issue around that is that the industry is still developing. People haven't necessarily found the best business model. However, I think the ones at the moment are fine. But once again, it just comes back to the fact that so much of the earnings in the current market are around sponsorship and the non-endemic sponsors with the larger budgets and looking for the larger reach have been a lot slower to mature. It's obvious if you're looking at a brand like FaZe, they've got digital reach that um, you know can target so many different people and is on similar levels to an NFL club or a European football league club. So there's no way that they wouldn't be able to attract these sponsors other than, you know, preconceived ideas of gaming and esports and and sponsorship expectations and education of the brands that are wanting to get in. 
There's also obviously the gap of franchise fees being paid down. You know, that doesn't exist a lot in esports. There's also broadcast that isn't right here in esports right now. So you combine those earning issues with the fact that players are commanding quite large salaries and there's so many employees you have to hire to be part of an esports team as well. This is one of the major reasons why I started a consultancy startup and an influencer agency instead of an esports team. I'm a big believer in the valuations of esports teams being large and being a massive property now and in the future. However, what scares me in esports is having to pay so many salaries at such an infant section in the market. I'd be much safer with big esports where I'm paying a few salaries for myself and some staff or with Shade where, you know, as a talent agency, most of it's contrary. You're not paying these people a salary to stick around. They're here because they're invested in the growth of themselves and the business. And as a content creator, they're invested in making money for themselves, which we're taking a clip from. You know, do you think that people were chasing the valuations and that there was a lack of education? So, you know, we haven't seen as many disciplined or diligent investors in the esports space as, as are going to come later on. Yeah, it's hard because part of it is what do you base evaluation on? And if you use the standard metric of revenue, it becomes quite large of, of you know, 11 to 25 times has been, you know, almost common, I think, in the esports industry, especially if you look at the Forbes article of the largest valued esports uh, companies, which is essentially they're all just teams that are listed on there. I think part of it is that you need to have a large valuation if you're spending so much money. Um, you can't necessarily, you know, be spending more money than A, you're earning, but also, you know, B, you're losing. So you need to have a valuation to justify that fact. There's also the future earning potentials are quite large. If you're looking at the PwC compound annual growth rate in Australia of, you know, 18.3% up until 2023, that's quite, it's quite amazing. If you're looking at the growth of esports globally, it's also quite amazing, but it's who can hold on for the ride throughout the whole time. I think there are some very smart teams that are sitting in the tier two, tier three now who may remain victorious. It may be, you know, the turtle and the hare and it may be the, the slowest person and safest wins the race in the end. Who knows? Or it could be those with a large evaluation spending a lot more money like Cloud9 or people that are diversifying into content creation with a strong history in that like phase that might stick it out throughout that period of time. Because once again, a company like FaZe has so many more income avenues with their talent making money through ad revenue from Twitch and YouTube, whereas a lot of other teams, they just don't have that following to be able to rely on on ad revenue to pull them through. What do you think of the franchise system? Obviously, that's become very popular with the bigger publishers here in the States, right? You've got Blizzard running an, a franchise system for Overwatch. You have Riot doing that with League. Do you think we'll see that with other titles? And do you think it will expand ultimately outside of the US? Yeah, I think it's a trend that'll continue. Um, like I talked about before, support from publishers is so important to developing a good ecosystem. I'm more of a fan of the way that Valve works with Dota 2 and CSGO, which is uplifting other tournaments to happen and make money. Once again, the same narrative I've talked about before. I have concerns around some of the franchising, just in the fact of the longevity of a game. So when I did an eSports education seminar with some investors, one of their questions was, Okay, so you've explained to me that games don't last forever, like soccer, football does. You've explained to me that over a period of time, a game can lose popularity, fall off the face of the earth. So if I've bought an asset, which is, say, a $30 million US franchise fee into Overwatch, and then the game, quote-unquote, dies and isn't around anymore, what asset do I hold? And I don't have an answer for that personally. I didn't have an answer for that investor, and I think that's a good point. 
because it can become an issue. You know, what happens if there's a mass exodus of Overwatch and those people who have paid a large franchise fee uh, you know, stuck holding something that's not worth anything anymore and an asset. But, you know, they should understand that and that's part of what you sign up with, you know, coming into these franchise leagues. The advantage with the franchise league is the standard franchise model is to pass money down. So if they sell broadcast rights, if they sell large sponsorship rights, they're passing that money down to their teams. So things are sharing up and down, a little bit similar to the content creator model that I mentioned before, which is a fantastic way for more people to make more money. What does the future hold for big esports and shade crew? It's a pretty open question, and I think there's a, there's a lot happening for us right now. Look, with with big, we're riding the wave of the esports market. We're making money where we can and, and developing our core services, which is primarily around the esports education due diligence. It's around consultancy and around events and PR with a little bit of work in influencers. So we're always seeking new brands and bringing them into the esports space, helping them to understand and be properly educated on what they're getting themselves into. As far as Shade goes, there's a lot more talent signings that'll take place soon and a lot more work with brands that will be helping to bring into the space, not only just to work with us, but also to work with us in collaboration with other influencers we don't manage and esports teams and properties that we don't manage either. Um, we'll be bringing a lot more traditional talent into the space, but also looking to sign some more Fortnite talent and some top competitive players who are extremely interested in content creation as well as being a good player at the same time. And if you were starting a business in the esports space, or maybe zooming out and thinking more broadly even about all of media and entertainment, what would you do? I think I'd be doing what I'm doing right now, to be honest, across the two different platforms, and that's why I'm working in that. I'd be closely monitoring how esports teams are looking and trying to work my way into that because I think they're going to be a massive property now and in the future because they are a bit of everything. They're a bit of an agency, they're a bit of a sports team, and they're a bit of a player and content creator um, management type company as well as a media company. So I think they're going to be a great property in the future. However, right now it's it's very expensive to get into that space. There are also so many gaps in the market right now. If you look at traditional sports and you look at esports, there's enough teams, there's enough events and leagues, everything else there's probably not enough of. Live facilities, digital marketing agencies, player managers, you know, law and support, accountancy, all these kind of things too. So whether you're looking to niche down and be the only accountant that does esports only, or whether you think that you can include that in your portfolio as to what you're doing, that's another question as well and, and something that can help cash flow. Very smart. And a good tip for entrepreneurs out there who are looking at a growing category like esports and thinking about uh, what are the other opportunities, maybe the picks and shovels approaches to serving this growing ecosystem. Where can people find out more about you, Chris, and more about Big Esports and Shade Crew? So you can find me online at Smithy Mayo, and that's my URL for LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Usually on there, I'm sharing a few musings about my life and, and often quite a bit of analytics work on the esports and influencer market. You can find Big Esports at bigesports.gg, and you can also find Shade Crew primarily on YouTube and Instagram at Shade Crew. Very cool. Well, I encourage everyone who is interested in learning more about the esports space or some of those non-endemic brands who've been watching from the sidelines, thinking about getting into the game to, to contact you and learn more about 
you know, the consultancy options through big esports, and certainly exciting uh, content creation and new formats that are popping up as a result of the influencer work that, that you guys do at Shade Crew and, and through other outlets. So uh, thank you for coming on the show and really appreciate you sharing your perspective in how the gaming and esports space has evolved so much over the last decade. Yeah, thank you, James. It's been a good chat. It's been good to be on someone else's podcast for a change, not just my own. That's right. So uh, one more quick plug. Tell people about your podcast and the content that you guys focus on. Yeah, so we have a podcast that comes out each Thursday at 7 o'clock our local time, which is Melbourne, Australia, and it's covering the business behind esports. So we're talking to esports companies about how they make money, how their growth is happening, and, and issues as they currently see in the market. It's been a great way to talk to brands from Australia and around the globe, everything from a cycling VR tournament to the co-founder of Fnatic, one of the largest gaming teams in the world. So make sure you listen in and, and ask any questions, and if anyone would like to be on that podcast who's listening right now feel free to contact me at the social medias as mentioned before there we go chris thanks again this has been a blast thanks james have a good day thanks for tuning in i'm james creech and this has been another edition of all things video if you like what you hear we hope you'll share and subscribe for new episodes see you next time